Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And tonight we will address you as you really are. Wizards, travelers, mermaids, sorcerers, magicians. For you are the true dreamers of dreams. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we're going to do our second part of our dive into the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, pulling out some of the rules in the back of the book that nobody bothers to read, and going into them in a little bit of depth and talking about these rules a little bit. Way in the back. Way in the back. That's probably the big reason why nobody bothers to look for them, because they've tucked them away way back in the back. Yeah, I mean, really, you get so excited to play and you open the DMG and so you got the how to world build and how to build a campaign and especially for a first time reader or a first time DM, that's a bit of a slog to read. I've read some dry stuff, you know, going through college and whatnot, but even then it's like, okay, so let's get forward. Hey, there's a picture. There's a picture. Okay, there's a table and another table and another table. And I love tables, but I mean, for me, by the time I'm halfway through, I'm like, okay, I think I got this. Let's go. In my opinion, part three, which is where almost all of our stuff has been coming from and will be coming from until we finish this section, part three should have come much earlier in the book. All of these little rules should have come earlier in the book because they are actually applicable to running the game, which is ostensibly what you're getting the DMG for is learning how to run the game and less how to build the world that you're running the game in. Generally, yeah, but honestly, building the world is a... I mean, we're a world building in a homebrew podcast, so world building is very, very important. Again, if you've not been a DM before and you want to be a DM, do it, please. We need more DMs at the tables. But it is a lot of work, and it, it can be a hard thing to jump into for the first time. It really can be. But what I'm trying to get at here is giving people the rules and the framework to run the game, to actually run the mechanical side of the game. As a dungeon master, those seem to me to be the more important things to have in a book that the people who wrote the game are giving you. I want to know how to run your game more than I want to know how to build a world for your game. So if I'm paying you $50 for a book that's supposed to be telling me how to run this game, I want you to tell me how to run the game. You mean that the chapter running the game shouldn't be chapter 8 in the book? Yes, I'm saying that running the game should probably be chapter... Just looking at the table of contents should probably be chapter 1 or 2. Yeah, probably. Just, I think that running the game should come before world building. You know, a world of your own is chapter one in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. I think that running the game should come before that. Probably. To be fair, they are trying to grab the imagination. That's enough of my tirade for one night. So Ian gets to punch another hole on his grumpy old man card. Yep, another three card punches and I get a rocking chair from my porch. Anyway, the things we're going to cover today, going on with stuff in the back of the book, we're going to actually cover some fun things here. Uh, Sentient magic items, that's something we've touched on once or twice in some previous podcasts. Crafting your own spells. This actually is one of those things where wizards said, yeah, you can do it, and that's about it. Yeah, really. They they left a lot to the imagination. They gave you buckus is what they gave you. They said, well, go look at another spell that's kind of like what you want and base it off of that. That's literally what they did. We've got a bit to do for that one. Again, that can be a lot of fun. There's a lot of variety and a lot of options here. And then the last thing we're going to try to hit up today is a way to use spell points instead of spell slots. So that's is actually a suggestion from one of our listeners and a friend of Ian and mine, Conrad. Hi, Conrad. Hey, Conrad. But yeah, this was something he brought up, and this is a mechanic that you'll actually see in some other tabletop games as well that's usable. So we're going to touch on that. And really, when you look at spell points versus spell slots, I think spell points tend to be a little bit easier to use. I think they fit a little better personally. If you're wanting to go for a very high fantasy spell slinging sort of game, spell points really are the way to go. We'll get to that in a little bit. That's at the end of the agenda. So let's go ahead and start off at the top of the agenda with sentient magic items. This was one of the ones that you picked. Yeah, I like the concept. This allows for a lot of fun at the table. It depends on how familiar with the game or how well your party and table can improv or play with things. This opens up a lot of options. Again, I read a lot of old fantasy and then a lot more after I met my wife and she grew up on the old 80s D&D novels and things like that. So the sentient magic items, one of those things that tied into a lot of plot lines. And one of the elements that they point out in the book regarding sentient magic items, 
they're predominantly weapons. They're not exclusively weapons, but they're predominantly weapons. I think one big caveat to that, and it's actually probably one of my favorite, not within the D&D game or universe, but in the comic Spawn, the character's armor was actually sentient. And there was a whole arc that they did where he tried to separate himself from his magical armor that was sentient. And it was this weird love story between the armor and the character back and forth and how the armor actively tried to protect them and give him hints and and the problems he had after this. And if you ever get a chance to read the Spawn comics, they're really interesting, but particularly that arc. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the arc. But what I was going to get at is that sentient magic items are effectively an NPC that one of your players can equip. So it's going to have a personality. It's going to have traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws like we discussed a while back in our non-player characters with character episode and they have a purpose so they have a goal in mind and they want their attuned wielder to help them achieve their goal and if you don't you end up having a conflict with the item and the item can just decide to stop working for you or sometimes actively work against you oh yeah Um, it can actually attempt to take over to subvert your will and then act through you how it wants to another close concept to the sentient item if you look at the uh, one ring in lord of the rings it wasn't fully sentient but it definitely had a will of its own that was tied to sauron but if the person wasn't moving along with it quick it would try to find a way to fall off or find a new owner or things like that so even along those lines but imagine if you had a life goal you know something that you devoted your entire being to and yet you had no way to move or affect that on your own. So it's definitely one of those very frustrating scenarios. So what did you want to get into on this one? Just the possibility, when should a character find maybe a sentient item? Should it be something that they start off with and grow with? Should it be something they find as maybe a rare item versus an uncommon or very rare item? Is it part of a treasure table? Is it a plot hook? And then how would you expect that character to interact with that item at the table? How are you going to communicate with your item? Things like that. Well, I think that a lot of that depends on the story that you're running. A sentient item should be storyline appropriate. I know I refer to Critical Role a lot, but they're at the end of season one. I'm going to just go ahead and throw out the spoilers because it's been like four years since this happened. And if you haven't caught up on season one, just skip five minutes ahead and near the end of season one, when Grog ends up getting the Sword of Kaz. It's an artifact that is also sentient. And the sole drive, the purpose of the Sword of Kaz, is that it is seeking to destroy Vecna and anything associated with him. So it wants to attack all of Vecna's followers. It wants to destroy Vecna's artifacts. If it's got the hand or the eye of Vecna nearby, it's going to try and destroy it. If Vecna's there... It wants you to kill him. Right. And so that's going to be something where, as a DM, you're going to find a way to communicate with your character. Either discuss this with the character beforehand, if they're really good at role-playing, or perhaps, you know, the old pass a note across. In a more technological age, it's a lot easier. If everybody has their tablets or phones, you can just send, you know, a PM or a DM, whatever, to your character. Sword says this. That's a great way to do it. Going against the will of your sword, I think, would actually be kind of a neat thing if... You had a paladin sword, and what happens if your paladin becomes an oathbreaker? Or maybe the sword was an oathbreaker, and maybe the the sentience in the sword is trying to redeem itself. These are various things. There's a story that I found on Reddit forever ago about a sentient greatsword had the soul of a paladin inside of it that ends up getting picked up by an ogre, and the ogre is very gradually converted into being a lawful good individual because it bonds with the sentience within the sword. See, that would be a great RP storyline. That would be wonderful. And then you can use that as a line if your character wanted to multi-class. Another old story is the uh, Valdemar series by 
Uh, Mercedes Lackey. But in the Valdemar series, there was a sword named Need. And actually, it was made by a mage smith who imbued her spirit into the sword called Need. And when a mage picked up the sword, it actually made her a competent swordsman. So it gave her like basically fighting styles and the ability to fight. But for this mage or for this wizard, the sword was actually her familiar of all things. So instead of having like an owl or snake or a fey dragon or something like that as a familiar, uh, the sword was the mage's familiar, which was actually a really cool twist on the story. And again, always something I kind of wanted to try at a D&D table to tinker with. I had a character once, a wizard, who their spell book was a sentient magic item. It was the phylactery of a lich. It had some enchantment placed over it to where he couldn't materialize out of it. And so it was sitting in this library collecting dust and she comes along and picks it up and she starts communicating telepathically with it and the spell book which was this lich's spell book starts teaching her how to use magic and so it's not just her spell book but it's also her tutor and so she has this whole big book full of spells and she's learning how to use the spells as the sentience in the spell book deems her ready to learn those spells and the ultimate goal of the sentience in the spell book is to get her sufficiently powerful with magic to remove the enchantment on the spell book so that he can remanifest out of his phylactery. That's actually a good plotline. I like that a lot. And again, that leads into a lot of really good story. So if you had a sentient weapon, say you had a hammer of gnome smashing to make gnome jelly. We call it the gnome jellyizer. Probably a better name for that. But how would you take that for if you went against the item or the weapon's alignment? What would you personally throw in for going against the alignment? Would you throw in maybe like instead of advantage, you automatically got disadvantaged as the weapon tries to automatically miss? Maybe if it was a spell, try to lower your spell DC. What would you think for that? I mean, the logical first step for repeated violations, the first warning, should I say, would be it turns off all of the magic bonuses. So if it gives you a plus something to hit, that goes away. If it gives you a plus something to damage, that goes away. It just turns into a straight, flat hammer. That's a non-magical weapon that just does basic, non-magical, mundane damage. That so basically would, it pouts that, like Achilles? Yeah, pretty much. Until you appease it. Because it has its desires and it has its own will. And so you have to appeal to that in order to have it keep helping you. Would you call that appeal maybe a long rest or a short rest? It would require changed behavior. Okay, so uh, on your first warning, just change behavior? I mean, you could potentially engage in persuasion or intimidation or some charisma check against it because it does have mental stats it does have a charisma stat so you could ostensibly attempt a charisma check against it to attempt to reason with it but again it's a magic item you could rule that this magic item has a limited sentience so it is very narrow-minded in what it wants to do and it's not really capable of reasoning both are good options i believe we put actually some will and charisma checks in with our staff of the pretender when we worked with our yon team mage i think so it's been a hot minute since we did that yeah i think a charisma or a will check on a first warning i think that would be fair i think on repeated violations it would need at least a short possibly a long rest or maybe even you have to reattune to the weapon or item itself I would say after repeated violations for whatever reason, like if you were at a battle of wills with this thing, that after changed behavior, you'd have to possibly reattune to it. I would say that the next thing would be it tries to take you over because there's rules for that. It tries to assert its will over you and you have to make a charisma save against it. That's also another possible option, yeah. So it's going to start off by trying to withhold the carrot. And if withholding the carrot doesn't do it, then giving you the stick is what it's going to go with. And if it's unable to get you to change your behavior by withholding its bonuses, and then unable to get you to change your behavior by taking over your free will, then it's going to just decide that it's going to seek other opportunities. And actively work against you. Um, It is going to actively work against you. It's going to look for a way to get away from you somehow. It's going to look for a way to get in the hands of someone else who is going to be more amenable to its desires. 
I like that. And, you know, if you have a magical sword that you're used to using and it's mad at you and then all of a sudden you're disarmed in the middle of the fight, that can be a huge swing and something subtle. So how you want to play particularly with, you know, a sentient item definitely gives you a lot of options. I kind of also see, like, if you had something, particularly if it's more of a neutral item, something like if you had a puppy and you're trying to train this thing or even like a ranger's animal companion to a point, how are you going to work this will? So it's not just, hey, I have this thing and it's always going to say, I want donuts for breakfast, but it might have some definite feels. And again, depending on how in depth you want to go with your items, that can be a party member. You know, it's an NPC, but it could almost be a member at the table just by itself. Absolutely. And you had talked a little while back about making a magic item, specifically a weapon that grew with the wielder, that as the character gained levels, they unlocked extra bits on their magic item. Right. That was actually something I'd considered when we were first brainstorming the Staff of the Pretender. And I really like the items that grow with your character. But a sentient item would be perfect for that sort of thing. And treat it like I did with my spell book on my wizard. Treat it as the mentor, the tutor, who is teaching the character how to use this weapon. And as they prove themselves worthy of the next ability, then it unlocks. Yeah, that would be a great way to do that. Particularly if you had something like a fighter or a rogue or even a paladin, honestly. Well, a, paladin like would be, a paladin would be a great choice for that. Right. So as an initiate, you get this hammer or axe or what, long sword or whatever you get from the armory. And it's been blessed by whatever deity or whatever you t- decide to follow. And that's how that sect of paladins trains their paladins and the initiates is instead of a one-on-one with an actual mentor or a person, they're trained with their weapons through this blessing or the sentient that's somehow been granted to the weapon. And, yeah, that'd be a great way to do that. And I would almost want to do it like this sentience is actually the soul of somebody, particularly someone not only with the prowess, with the martial knowledge, but also someone whose soul needs to be redeemed. So this would be, you know, the soul of an Oathbreaker, maybe. Or this could be fun. The soul of an Arrhenius, a fallen angel. That would be fun. That would be really cool. And the whole thing is, once they achieve a certain stage of cleansing, they get to be released and reborn as a diva, as a proper angel, as their redemption arc. I could see that. So you end up getting a redemption arc for your sentient item on top of whatever your overarching story arc for your character is. Right. We need to do that. We need to make a sentient item that goes with the characters and start leveling up stats with them well so your item would have levels as well. That Um, would be really cool. I would almost want to make that a specific paladin oath. I think there is already an Oath of Redemption, but something along those lines where, and then we just lay out, here's your Oath progression, and this is how your weapon progresses as you level up, and this is how your weapon levels up with you. Another cool possibility with the Paladin, if the item was imbued with the soul of a Celestial Pact Warlock. Okay, or even even like a Divine Soul Sorcerer. Either one of those would work really well. The sky's really the limit on what you can do with these items. The sentient item can really be an extra player at the table. I think that does a pretty good job of wrapping up sentient magic yeah. items. We could absolutely keep talking about this for an hour if we wanted Easily. to. But we do have two more topics to talk about, so let's go ahead and push it. So the next thing we got is spellcrafting. Yeah, spellcrafting. This was actually something that can be a lot of fun, too. We brought this up. I found a meme on Facebook that absolutely struck me funny, and it was lightning striking a tree, and it says, you know, when the wizard crosses divination with evocation, detect evil and turn it into crispy bacon. So we had to throw this in just because of that meme. Yeah, so spellcrafting is something that gets overlooked a lot, especially in 5th edition. I think that there were some pretty well laid out rules in 3rd edition, but it's been a long time since I've looked at them, so I I won't really stand by that statement very strongly. I'm just trying to remember that one. Yeah, I think they covered it. I didn't craft too many spells in 3rd edition, so that wasn't something I touched too much on. But I kind of think... I don't know, it feels like they had an idea, they had their plot points, what they wanted to put in the DMG, and then they had a deadline, so they just kind of like brushed a little bit of dirt over and said, there, no, nobody will notice. Right, because as I was jokingly saying earlier, it is basically, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and read verbatim what they have in here under creating a spell. If a spell Please is, open your holy books. 
Please open your holy books to page 283. So, when creating a new spell, use existing spells as guidelines. Here are some things to consider. If a spell is so good that a caster would want to use it all the time, it might be too powerful for the level. A long duration or large area can make up for lesser effect, depending on the spell. Avoid spells that have very limited use, such as one that works only against good dragons. Though such a spell could exist in the world, few characters would bother to learn or prepare it unless they know in advance that doing so would be worthwhile. Make sure that the spell fits with the identity of the class. Wizards and sorcerers don't typically have access to healing spells, for example, and adding a healing spell to the wizard class list would step on the cleric's turf. Yeah, those are the rules. The end. The end. So yeah, they give you bupkis. They really do. That being said, they do give you a nice table to work with. Yay, tables. Again, I will forever be a fan of tables. So they kind of give you a rough idea of how much damage a spell should do at any given level, if it's single target or AoE. Right. And I did go ahead and break this down. I'm not going to read them all off because it's 20 individual numbers, but I did go ahead and break this down for the average damage per spell level for single target and for AoE. And it does also say that if the spell does not deal half damage on a miss or half damage on a successful save, you can increase the damage by 25%. So that would mean, for a second level spell, for example, the single target average damage for 3d10, which is what they give as the benchmark, would be 17. So you could bump that up to about a 21-22, which would be about 66. So you can bump that up a little bit, which is actually what Scorching Ray gives you, oddly enough, because you get three rays at 2d6 per, so that's 66 total, and it's a hit or miss. If you miss, it deals no damage. So that falls within that framework, actually. Whereas something like Melf's Acid Arrow. Melf's Acid Arrow, as baseline, is 64. So it's 44 on the initial, and then 2d4 at the end of their next turn, if it hits them. Then they take half damage if they miss. So that would be closer to the average damage. Average damage ends up coming out to 15. 15 is just right near 17. The math adds up. And so if you're going to take the time to make a spell, you have an idea of how much damage you're going to do. But then there's the great question of what kind of damage you're going to do. And this delves into some really good reading that Ian had found. I'll let him get more into that. But the type of damage you want to use actually can make a considerable difference. Absolutely. So this is all coming from an article that I found about five months ago on Reddit by a user named Moth Prophet. I'm still trying to get in touch with them at the time of recording. I haven't gotten in touch with them yet. I would love to have them on at some point to talk about this a little bit more in depth because this is just a little snippet at the end of the article that they wrote that is just really just jam-packed full of great information. But I'm going to try and use they because I don't know Moth Prophet's gender. I may slip and use he at some point. And if I do, I apologize. But I'm going to try. So what they set out at the initial point, I don't know if this was their assessment or if this was something that they pulled in from somewhere else. But there are three tiers of damage based on how many creatures have either resistance or immunity to the damage type. This is what I reference periodically whenever I talk about poison being the weakest damage type, because so many creatures have resistance or immunity to poison. So tier 1 is force and psychic damage. Tier 2 is necrotic, thunder, and radiant damage. And then tier 3 is acid, poison, cold, fire, lightning. So this is the breakdown based off of how likely a target is to resist partially or fully the damage from your spell. And so these numbers, as they are laid out here, would correlate to a tier 3 damage type, according to Moth Prophet's listing. So if you had a 6 level spell, it would be 10d10 as the for a single target spell for an average of 55 damage. That would be for fire damage. Right. The equivalent, if you were to bump it up to a tier 2 for radiant damage, would be 10d8, which would be 45. Or, if you bumped it up to tier 1 and made it force damage, it would be, the equivalent would be 10d6, or 
35 average. So as you change the damage type, you have to change the damage die that you're using for your spell in order to keep it more balanced. So the rarer resistances should have a lower damage die that you use in your spell. And the DMG does point out that you can take the D10 that they're using for their base damage here, which has an average of 5.5, and you can swap that out for, say, 2D4, which would have an average of 5, without really changing the averages too much. You know, half a point isn't going to make a huge amount of difference in the grand scheme of things. It will once you get up to the higher levels, 15d10 versus 30d4, mainly because who has 30d4s? Right. And that kind of gets into some things, too, is that if you're actually going to craft the spell and you're going to use, I heard radiant force damage is the best, so now all of my mage spells are going to be force damage, you're going to have to think of what kind of spells actually going to deliver that force damage. So kind of like what the Dungeon Master Guide had referenced before, you know, obviously wizards don't get healing spells because that's going to step on the cleric's toes. So it would be kind of odd for a wizard to start slinging some radiant spells. I mean, there might be one or two in the bag. But if you're going to come up with a reason to have a radiant spell, as a DM, I want a backstory. I want something that's going to play well. There needs to be a reason behind that. It's not just something that, oh, I heard this works, so I'm going to do it. Right. This would, again, be the divine soul sorcerer. You know, somebody who has that divine connection. Or perhaps a a wizard that multiclasses into cleric. Right. I think if you wanted force damage, you know, obviously something like Dresden, his wind spells, Ventus Servitas, or if you wanted to summon your inner Looney Tunes and you, you know, summoned a 10 ton anvil or boulder and dropped it on somebody, you could probably do force damage with that. Uh, Actually, that that would be kind of a spell. That would be bludgeoning. Oh, okay. Most of your wind spells in D&D actually do bludgeoning damage. Okay, I thought the bludgeoning and force were more along the same lines. No, force is something completely different. Magic missile is force. Okay, I retract my statement. Yeah, I think there are only like three or four spells in the player's handbook, at least, that deal force damage. Most notably, Eldritch Blast, because Eldritch Blast falls so far outside of the rules for what should be possible with cobbling pieces together. Because you end up having a D10 damage die, force damage, AoE potential on a cantrip. Yeah, Eldritch Blast is... It can be a lot of fun to play with. But again, that's your bread and butter for a warlock. You don't get a whole lot of spells outside of that. So Hashtag should have been a class feature. Really should have been. But yeah, so in their post, they go through the different changes that you can make specifically for cantrips. The different changes that you can make to damaging cantrips to change the damage type, change the area of effect, change the range, change the rider is the term that they use. So on a failed save, this happens. Changing what type of save it is, because there are saves that are considered weak saves, which means that lots of spells have them, and so there's a lot of resistance to it, versus strong saves, which means not many people have them, and there aren't very many spells that have them. Going ahead and doing a tangent into this, your weak saves are going to be constitution, wisdom, and dexterity. Because those three together make up something like 90 to 95% of the total spell saves in the game. Between spells and monster abilities. With constitution being the biggest chunk because of all of the poison effects and disease effects and what have you. And then dex follows just right behind that. Dex and Wisdom are about even, all told. Really? Absolutely, yes. I don't come across a lot of Wisdom or Will saves, generally. Like I said, Oh, yeah. There are a bunch of Wisdom saves. It seems I have to do a Dex save against a Fireball more frequently than anything else, except for the Poison and stuff like that. And again, if you want a good con save, we invite you to last week's episode where we played Drink Smash. Drink Smash! Was that last week? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, two weeks ago. The issues that you have whenever you're recording two weeks ahead. And then your strong saves are going to be strength, charisma, and intelligence. I think that all told there are, I think that there are three intelligence saves in the spells in the player's handbook. Just three total. Because there, I there's have no idea what those are. I've never done an intel save. Well, feeble mind is one. The insanity portion of the symbol spell is one. And I actually have this pulled up so that I can cheat and give you the third one because I can't remember it. 
Phantasmal Force. Okay, as a DM, I know that if a Necromancer player casts Command Undead, I believe the monster has an Intel save possibility to see if they shake it. As a player, I've never had to roll an Intel save. Well, that's because there's only three spells that do it. Intelligent saves typically ride on spells that deal psychic damage. And so they are spells which scramble your gray matter. That is specifically the category that intelligence saves are tacked onto. Because anything that affects your mental state, like charm effects, fear effects, those sorts of things, those are all wisdom saves. Right. So things like suggestion, fear, slow, polymorph, those are all wisdom saves. And then charisma saves. It was hard for me to really categorize, to differentiate between when a save should be which of the three mental stats. Intelligence and wisdom, there's a little more delineation there. But charisma, it's mostly about things that subvert free will without changing the mind. So things like Zone of Truth requires a charisma save. Bane requires a charisma save because it's basically you're imposing bad luck onto them. They're still very much aware that the spell is happening. They're aware that they're under the effects of this spell and they don't have a way to exert their free will to overcome it. That sounds terrifying. Absol- I mean, just, oh, it just is. from a real life, yeah, that's horrifying. It is. It is absolutely horrifying. And then banishment. So anything that would force something from one plane of existence to another plane of existence against their will. Those require charisma saves. So again, charisma saves are terrifying from an RP standpoint. They really can be. So this kind of gives you the things that if you want to build a spell, these are things to consider and kind of tinker with. More than just how much damage a spell is going to do what kind of damage, what kind of saves you're going to throw, duration, things like that. There's a lot of flavor you can add into these. And as a DM, if you're going to make a spell, I'm all for players making spells because this can be a lot of fun. But make them support, you know, what they want to do. I mean, let their imaginations run wild, but definitely bring something to the table, guys. So there are a couple of little things that I would personally suggest changing with regards to the spell saves. One, and I think this is just an oversight, the spell Thunder Wave, because as written, it requires a constitution save to resist forced movement. And everything else that does forced movement or forced immobilization or knock prone, all of that is a strength save, including the paladin ability Thunderous Smite, which is basically a single target Thunder Wave. So I would propose that we change the saving throw for Thunder Wave from a con save to a strength save. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Because you are literally using your physical form to resist the shockwave, to resist the force, to keep yourself from moving. Right. I'm wondering if they did concept, kind of like the concept of like a flashbang, where the pressure sound and a light, you know, hit you so hard that you're stunned. And that kind of stun I could see as a con save. If they intended it that way, then they would have a con save versus the stunned condition. That is true. Now, this is clearly a save against forced movement, which means it should be a strength save. That is my argument for that. With that, yes, I would agree. The other argument I want to make is I think that illusion spells should require an intelligence save rather than an investigation check to disbelieve, at least when they're cast. If you can see them cast the spell, or if you can see the spell appear, I think you should be able to have an intelligence save at the time the spell is cast, if you can see where the illusion is appearing, you should be able to get an intelligence save. If you have an illusionist who makes an illusion around the corner, and then you round the corner and you come face to face with it, then you don't have any reason to believe it's not an illusion until you probe it. But I think that if an illusion just magically appears, I think you should be able to get an intelligence save immediately to disbelieve it. I could see that. That gets into some bookkeeping, though. I mean, are you in line of sight? All of that stuff. I could see that. I kind of get the whole, you know, if David Copperfield makes the elephant disappear, is that really an intel check to see if you notice the mirror shifting or not? I mean, personally, as a DM, if a player brought that up to me, I'd probably allow it. Again, it's a lot of bookkeeping of whether or not they noticed the spell being cast. If you want the extra steps at the table, then yeah, sure, go for it. I don't have an issue with what you proposed, but I also really don't have an issue with the spell check as written. And 
Granted, it doesn't fall into the same rigid category that the other intelligence saves do, which is it's a change to the actual function of your mind. So things that induce insanity, things that deal psychic damage that have a rider on top of them. I'd almost want to say that like an illusion would almost be a will save because it's you understanding your surroundings. I mean, you're not going to intellectualize and ponder through an illusion. If you're in a hall of mirrors, you're not thinking and plotting out lines, trying to figure your way out. You're trying to sense and figure out what's the reflection and which way is the real light. And so for me in that sense, again, that seems to be more awareness of your surrounding and making sure if the illusion, does it cast a shadow? Is it making a sound? Does it smell right? You know, that kind of thing. And those seem to be more sensory than intellectual. I think I'll cede that point to you. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that a wisdom save would make a little bit more sense than an intelligence save for an illusion. All right. So that brings us to our third topic for today. Spell points. This is one that, as we said, a friend of ours who listens to the show, Conrad, brought up asking if we could talk about it. So here we are, Conrad. We're talking about your spell points. So I was actually surprised when I found spell points in the back of the DMG. It's on page 288. I didn't realize that they had actually provided a spell point variant rule system in D&D for you to use. I took what they had available and I broke it down and compared it to what you get in the standard rules with spell slots. So with spell points, you get a pool of spell points that you can draw from. Ostensibly, what they're saying is you draw from the pool to create a spell slot to cast the spell. And the conversion rate is the same as what a sorcerer would use if they were turning their sorcery points into a spell slot. So it takes two points for a first level spell, three points for a second level spell. It's not a perfect one-to-one conversion because there is a little bit of entropy involved, especially with sorcery points because you can take a spell slot and convert it into sorcery points at a one-to-one ratio. So you take a fifth level spell slot, you can convert that into five sorcery points, but if you wanted to convert back into a fifth level spell slot, it would take seven sorcery points. Right, the universe always takes her due, one way or the other. So, I was going through and I was comparing the two. The current limit to the number of spells you can cast per day using spell slots is 22. Because you get, at 20th level, you have a total of 22 spell slots across all of your different levels of spell slots for a full caster. This is all assuming a full caster, so bard, sorcerer, wizard, druid, cleric. And that sounds like a lot, but particularly if you're playing a higher level game, those spells drop really, really fast. Absolutely. Especially considering, you know, once you get to level 20, you have one ninth level, one eighth level, two seventh, two sixth, and then three, three each of fifth, fourth, third, and second, and then four first level. You run through those pretty quickly, especially if you end up having two or three combats, which is not at all uncommon. If you have three combats and each combat runs, you know, four rounds, you can cast, you know, 12 or more spells in that time, depending on if you cast any spells in the interim between combats. So you end up having a total of 22 spells per day that you can cast using the current spell slot system. If you're using the spell point system, they have a caveat where... You can only cast one each 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth level spell. So you don't get that second 6th level spell or second 7th level spell at high levels. You only get one of each. But for spells 5th level and lower, the only limit is how many spell points you have left in your pool. So I went ahead and did the math. So you could cast 19 5th level spells if you just spent all of your points on 5th level spells. That is a whole lot of 5th level spells. That is a whole lot of 5th level spells. So that would be a cleric using flame strike 19 times. So we know what Ian's doing on his next game. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm I mean, going to purge the heretics. That's what I'm going to do. So I like this. And as Ian said at the beginning of the podcast, if you're running a very high or intensely magical scenario or game or campaign... This feels a little bit better to me. This definitely gives you a lot more malleability with your spells. 
You know, I'd almost want to say that this could be like a feat where you could change your spell slots into spell points, but that would be really, really hard to keep track of. Again, if everyone was on point, could keep track of that kind of thing, that's great. Otherwise, just running pure spell points, it really does become a much simpler way to keep track of what you have available to you as a caster. And the DMG does also point out that you can use spell points for your monsters and the spell casters that you are running as a DM against your party. But it's a really bad idea because it's hard to keep track of, especially if you have more than one going at a time. So they do recommend keeping it with spell slots for your monsters and then letting your players run with spell points if they want. Though if you've got a computer there and you've got like four tablets open and 12 screens or you're running a game on something like D20, which we're not sponsored by D20. You mean Roll20? Yes, Roll20, that one. Exactly. See, we're not sponsored by them either. Um, (laughs) We're not sponsored by Roll20, but if you're using something like Roll20 and you can have four or five tabs open, that makes it a little easier to do that bookkeeping. That's fine. But if you're doing this traditional pen and paper, you do want to simplify things as much as you can most of the time. And speaking of simplifying things... So I went through looking at it and I'm like 133 spell points at 20th level. A ninth level spell costs 13 spell points. A first level spell costs two spell points. Why do we have to have this? Why does it have to be this complicated? So I went through and I shifted the whole thing to where you ended up having a smaller number of spell points. But the number of spell points you need to cast a spell is equal to the level of the spell. So a first level spell takes one point. A fourth level spell takes four points. A ninth level spell takes nine points. So that way you don't have to remember, okay, what's the conversion for points to spell level? No. I'm wait, casting- wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm confused. So how many spell points do I need for a first level spell? In the variant rules in the book, you would need two. In my system, you would need one. So one? One point is a first level spell. And if I wanted to maybe cast that first level spell as a second level spell, then how much math would I have to do? You would just use two points. Two. So what if I was doing something crazy, right? And then I cast a bunch of first level, and then I needed to cast a cantrip. Then how many spell slots would I have left? Well, I mean, cantrips don't cost any points because they're cantrips. That's easy math. I like easy math. Absolutely. And so that way you don't have to have a table in front of you and figure out how many points do I have to spend to get this spell. No. Wait, no table? Okay, you lost me. (laughs) Yeah, no, this actually makes it really, really easy. You could even give your players a little counter. I'm kind of thinking of like the old, if you ever played Magic the Gathering, where you have your your counting die. Yeah, you roll down d20. Yeah, or you have a little abacus or something, so you can keep an easy track or tally marks. I mean, this makes things so easy to keep track of. And it also makes it a whole lot simpler to go through and figure out how many spell points you have for half-caster classes and third-caster classes. So your half-caster classes are your your ranger and your paladin. Third-casters are like your eldritch knights and your arcane tricksters. So the way that they have it in the book is for a half-caster, you use half of your character level to determine how many points you get on this. And for a third-caster, you use a third of your level for this. It's like, no. What you do is you make it a one-to-one, So each level costs one point. And then you can just go to your class list in the PHB and go through and say, okay, I'm at this level. I have four first level spell slots, two second level spell slots. Four plus four is eight. I have eight spell points that I can use. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. So that way you don't have to try and cross your eyes and stand on one leg and hold your tongue just right to figure out which line on the chart Gives you your spell points. No, you just do a little quick, simple math, and this is how many points you get. Right, and it makes the bookkeeping a lot easier, too. Because, I mean, if you've had a long night and you do the all-night D&D and you've been at the table for four or five hours, and depending on who you're playing with or your age, maybe the drinks aren't all non-alcoholic and you got to figure out, when was our last rest and how many third-level spells have I cast already? And I wrote something, but I erased it. Was that a spell I cast or did I erase a mark? Or this, again, just a simple number. So it really does lighten up that bookkeeping quite a bit. And I did go ahead and go through and compare the system that I have proposed and the system in the variant rules in the book for the total number of spells you could cast per day if you cast all spells of the same spell level from full pool to empty pool. So with 5th level spells, you can get 19 5th level spells per the book. 
17 5th level spells per my system. About the same. You lose 2 spells. 4th level spells, 22 in the book, 22 my system. is the same. 3rd level spells, 26 per the book, 29 per my system. You pick up a little bit. 2nd level, 44 per the book, 44 per my system. It stays the same. 1st level spells, 66 per the book, 89 per my system. Because you have 89 total points, and each 1st level spell takes 1 point to cast. And I feel, especially if you're playing a very high magic, high fantasy, epic fantasy game, a 20th level wizard should be able to walk out on the field and cast first level spells all day long. They should be able to walk out and cast 89 castings of Magic Missile if they want to. All at once. And this is a spell I want to make. I'm calling it Nova Strike. You were calling it Omega Strike last night. That's right, Omega Strike. But either way, Omega Strike, all force damage, all your first level spells at once and done. That would be uh, 267 darts. So... 267d4 plus 267. I'm not doing the average math on that right now. Uh, it'd be 267 divided by 2. That would be 130, uh, 133. So, two, no, it'd be 267. 133 plus 267. So, here, divide it, it would be times 2.5. Yes. Uh, so, it'd be 668 plus 267, uh, 935. Hero was saying I wasn't going to do it, and then I had to pull out the calculator because you started. So, yeah, you can blow all your points and deal 935 force damage. And he just failed his will save, so I get points for that. <laughs> I'll take the inspiration die. So, yeah, this is the you kill the entire army spell. Absolutely. Now, one thing we were going to keep and one thing that, like you said, we were going to change. With this, we were keeping the limit of 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth level spells we could cast, correct? Yeah, but I was wanting to go ahead and let full casters get their second 6th level spell at 19th level and get their second 7th level spell at 20th level because they're getting the spell points into their pool to accommodate those extra spells. But rules is written in the variant rules, not getting those spells. Correct. And then the other thing we wanted to change that we had discussed was we were going to change the limit of spells per day cast, correct? There is no limit for fifth level and lower. I thought there was a limit. You can only cast 25 spells per day. No, that's how many you can cast per day with the spell slot system that is baseline rules. Okay, I thought you said that there was with the spell points that they limited you at the number. No, of as long as you have points in your pool, you can cast fifth level and lower spells. Awesome. Yeah, I like the system a lot. This feels a lot better. I would like to see something like this to roll out, maybe sixth edition, if and when it comes out. Again, your spell slot is a traditional D&D feature, so I don't think that's anything they're going to fully change anytime soon. But this really does make casting a lot more workable, in my opinion. And it makes casters feel more dynamic, in my opinion. Because you don't have to decide, okay, I have this second level spell that will work just fine for what I need to do, but I'm out of second level spell slots. Do I really want to upcast this using a fourth level spell slot... To get this effect, or do I want to use a fourth level spell? No, as long as I have two spell points, I can cast that second level spell. Yeah, absolutely. This definitely gives you a lot more malleability. And I think with like the wizard class where you don't have a limit of the spells you can know particularly, I don't think this is going to run too much of an issue. Yeah, because the number of spells you prepare doesn't change. Right, so I'm trying to think if that would change at all with your prepared spells or not. I don't think we're going to run into any conflict with that. No, it shouldn't. Okay. Because prepared spells, as they exist right now, aren't dependent on your spell slots. You can only prepare spells up to the maximum level you can cast. So, okay, if, they, so if you can only cast up to fourth level spells, you can't prepare yeah, a fifth right. level I was, spell. I, my brain got stuck in second and third edition. Because you're not preparing spells to a spell slot. Yeah, so with that change in fifth edition, that makes the system a lot easier to use. So yeah, the way that preparing spells in fifth edition works is... You have a cherry-picked list of the spells you have available to you, and you have these spells ready to go for today. So that's how preparing spells works in 5th edition. Right, yeah. And again, that's one of those things where my brain gets caught in the past sometimes. I mean, that was always how I house-ruled 3rd edition anyway. I didn't make you prepare your spells to a spell slot. I always just, yeah, you prepare your spells, 
but you can cast them at whatever level you want at the time, as long as you have a spell slot left of that level to cast it. And that's a fair way to do it. And I think a lot of people started doing it that way, which is probably why they shifted. I don't know if that's how they prepared spells in 4th edition or not, because I didn't play 4th, but... I didn't either, so... But yeah, so that's our system for spell points. And again, I think this actually is a lot more user-friendly. And I'll try and compile and clarify, especially the spell crafting and the spell points systems that we've been talking about today for the write-up on Friday. Excellent. So this, I think, kind of wraps up our second edition of Fun in the Back of the Book. We've got at least one more that we want to bring up to you guys next week. So yeah, Next week, the plan is talking about supernatural gifts and boons, planar travel, and alien tech. This is the one that I'm really excited about because alien tech. That's you want a steampunk game? This is how we get you a steampunk game. This is how you get lasers. With sharks attached to their head? With sharks attached to the laser's head? Yes. I think you got it backwards, but okay. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for our ramble through the backwoods of the DMG today. If you enjoyed what we did, or if you have something that you want us to cover in a future episode, go ahead and send it to us in an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or as a DM through Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing RP prompts based off of my Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar six days a week. They go up every day but Sunday on our Twitter account. So go ahead and check those out. If you get something off of those that you really want to share with us, we'd love to hear that too because we want to know that our listeners are actually using what we're putting out and that they're getting some mileage out of it. Absolutely. As we started out on the podcast, we're two schmucks on the internet. And so any ideas you guys bring to the table, we love to hear because that's what the world is. And the more people we have sharing ideas, then the more we get to play with. So we really look forward to that. You can find our podcast on just about every podcast streaming platform. We host on Podbean, but we're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, a couple of other places. So if you would, give us a rating, give us a like, leave a comment, anything to help us increase our visibility. We'd really appreciate that. We thank you all for joining us and we'll catch you all next week. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.